0: Nature in the next term
2: I
3: know yet. why like so far
4: like it sounds so simple they had no idea but now the data speak i find this not only refreshing but but at some level astounding nature
2: Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week we'll be taking a peek at how zebra finches see colour and we'll be hearing about a problem with plans to terraform Mars.
5: Plus, we're learning how researchers are linking individual extreme weather events to climate change. I'm Ellie Mackay. And I'm Adam Levy. First up this week, have you ever thought about living on Mars? Right now, it's not the most inviting environment, but there have been plenty of ideas of how that might be changed. Here's Bruce Tchaikovsky. He's one of the authors of a paper in Nature Astronomy this week, and he's been looking at how realistic some of these ideas might be.
1: Right now, the average temperature at the surface of Mars is about minus 60 degrees C. And if we could raise it up to zero degrees C, then we could have liquid water. That would allow us to function as humans in the environment without the need for domes or habitats.
5: Bruce is talking about the concept of terraforming Mars, modifying the atmosphere to make the planet more Earth-like and therefore habitable. But it's not just the temperature that's an issue. For us to live there, the atmospheric pressure of Mars would need to be 150 times greater than it is today. Yet proposals to terraform Mars have become increasingly popular. I asked Bruce how realistic the concept of terraforming Mars actually is.
1: What you can't see is I'm smiling at that question because the less we know about how we would actually terraform Mars the easier we think it is. And as you begin to explore it, it gets harder and harder. Right now, it's in the realm of science fiction because we don't really know how to do it. And I think the fact that we're changing the environment on the Earth inadvertently uh, underscores the fact that we really don't understand how climates work. Despite that, a lot of people have been speculating in the press lately about how easy it might be to terraform Mars. Our paper will be an interesting contrast to that in terms of dashing some people's hopes, to be honest.
5: Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging, Um, but to start off with, can you explain what's actually being proposed? So from a scientific point of view, how might we overcome these barriers of temperature and pressure?
1: If we wanted to terraform Mars, the way we would do it would be to put a greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. That would serve both functions of increasing the pressure and by trapping heat from the sun, increasing the temperature and that really depends on the availability of greenhouse gases or our ability to manufacture them. The most available and accessible greenhouse gas at Mars would be carbon dioxide, CO2.
5: Okay, and so this is what your research was looking at?
1: So we wanted to look at the inventory of CO2 on the planet, where reservoirs of CO2, if you will, reside, how much would be there, and how easy it would be to mobilise it and put it back into the atmosphere.
5: Essentially, that's what we're doing to this planet with global warming. (laughs) And we're trying to force a way to do that somewhere else. So it's like we could send all of our industry and all of our fossil fuel burning over to Mars, and uh, it would have a beneficial effect over there instead of... That's absolutely
1: right. We don't even need to send the manufacturing and industry to Mars. We could just ship all the CO2 there, and that would solve both planets' problems. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally facetious and absolutely unworkable. (laughs) We don't have that much CO2 in our atmosphere, and the number of rockets you would have to ship in order to get the CO2 there is immense.
5: Okay, so if we can't ship it there, Let's get back to this idea of using the reserves of CO2 that exist on Mars. Your paper mentions several possible sinks. There's CO2 in the polar ice, there's some in minerals called carbonates, and there's gas that gets bound to the layer of soil called the regolith on the surface of the planet. So that seems like a lot of different places for the CO2 to be trapped. How might we mobilise or release it from these sources?
1: probably the easiest is the co2 locked up in the polar ice all you need to do is spread dark dust over the polar caps and it would absorb more sunlight and heat up that's the easiest one and if that sounds hard you may not like the next ones the carbonates you have to heat up to temperatures at which they break apart and that's around 300 degrees c that automatically means a large scale industrial operation, and it wouldn't get you very much. I think the most difficult CO2 to mobilize is gas that is physically attached to the soil. You would almost have to strip mine the entire planet in order to put that gas back in the atmosphere, and that won't work because once you put it there, it'll go right back into the regolith. So this question of how easy it is to get it out of these sinks and into the atmosphere is a really important one. Ultimately, it's not possible.
5: If it were to become possible to do somehow, melting the polar ice caps seems to be the most popular solution. How much CO2 is actually trapped there?
1: At one time, we thought there might have been the equivalent of an Earth's atmosphere of gas in the polar caps. But that idea is demonstrably wrong, based on our knowledge today. The estimates today are that if you put all the CO2 in the polar caps into the atmosphere, it would only double the atmospheric pressure.
5: So that's not even close?
1: No. So that's a very small increment. This amount of CO2 just isn't enough to even have a start at raising the temperature or the pressure.
5: And what about if we added the CO2 from the other sources, the rocks and the minerals, the soil, and released all of the CO2 from all these different reserves?
1: We've looked at how much CO2 can be locked up in each of these sinks for CO2 that are remaining on the planet. If we could mobilise all of it and put it back into the atmosphere, we would still have less than 10% of the amount of CO2 we need to raise the temperature. So the most we can get is a tiny fraction of what would be
5: needed. Is that what you expected to find?
1: It's the answer we knew going in. I think within the Mars community, this is not a surprising answer. I'll be honest, that's why we wrote this paper, uh, because people are getting up and talking about how easy it is to terraform the planet without having a realistic understanding of what would be involved and where the CO2 is and how much there is.
5: So does this mean this is the end of the concept of terraforming Mars?
1: This doesn't mean we can't terraform the planet. It means we can't do it today with available technology. People have also talked about manufacturing molecules that are very effective greenhouse gases, things like freon. But the scale of manufacturing that would be required to produce enough is so far beyond our current capability that you have to put it into the distant future.
5: So what would you say to those people who are keen to inhabit Mars in the relatively near future?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think this impacts either our desire or our ability to explore Mars with humans. We can carry out that kind of a mission beginning today and it would be exciting from the human perspective and from the science perspective. And this is part of that process of discussing what's possible and where we as a society want to head. I think if we're going to talk about sending humans to Mars, we need to do it in the context of a real and valid understanding of what is on the planet based on the best available scientific information today.
5: That was Bruce Joukowsky from the University of Colorado in the US. To read that story in Nature Astronomy, you can head over to nature.com forward slash natastron.
2: Still to come in the research highlights, a dinosaur with enormous feet and some rapidly rotating nanoparticles. But before that, though, we humans love to put things in categories. Look, I'll show you, Ellie, what is in this picture?
5: Well, that's a rainbow over some mountains.
2: And can you describe what that rainbow looks like?
5: Well, it's a rainbow, so red, orange, yellow, green. Yes,
2: exactly. So you are listing colours. But the rainbow is actually a continuous gradient, a gradual transition from one end of the visual spectrum to the other. We humans categorise. We put each colour in camps. For me, it's red up to here and then starts being orange and then yellow starts about here. We don't just do this with colour, of course. It's especially important that we do this with
3: language, where we need to know exactly what someone's saying. A very well-known example is the distinction between the sounds pa and ba. This is biologist Steve Nowicki. These words, pa
2: and ba, sound very distinct. But even when a word is actually somewhere in between... A combination of the pa and bar you just heard. Pa, our minds categorize it as one or the other. To me, even knowing that that was a mashup of the two other recordings, it still sounded like bar. But maybe that's just because I've heard it so many times. Here it is again. Pa, I just can't help
3: categorizing it, and you probably did the same. That's just what we humans do. And that's very useful for us to be able to distinguish the parts of speech and to understand people clearly.
2: And it's not just us humans who like to categorise things. Steve wanted to find out whether a bird, the zebra finch, saw colour in a categorised way, like Ellie saw that picture of the rainbow. I called him up and we started out by discussing how these small birds interact with colour in their
3: daily lives. We know that these zebra finches, the females pay attention to the color of the male's beak, which can vary from quite orange to a quite dark red. And they prefer to mate with males having the darker red beak. And that's what led us to ask, well, is that continuous variation or is it categorical? It's either orange or red. Of
2: course, you can't just sit a zebra finch down and say, do you perceive this colour categorically differently to this colour? How did you end up testing this out in zebra finches?
3: You can train a bird to look for food under a little disc. Once they've learned that, then we train them that the only discs under which they'll find a food reward are ones that are bicolour. So, so half of the circle is one color, the other half of the circle is the other color. So then the trick of the experiments was to now start varying how different the two sides of the circle were. And so by varying how close those colors were uh, along this spectrum from orange to red, we were able to determine that there is a break point. On one side, they think the colors are mostly just orange, and on the other side of that breakpoint, they think the colours are, are mostly red, and it's only when you cross that breakpoint that the birds say, oh, those are two different colours.
2: So what does that actually mean about the bird's perception of the world and of colour?
3: It suggests that even though the colour is varying in a continuous fashion from a lighter orange to a darker red, the bird is labelling those colours either as orange on one side of the boundary or as red on the other side of the boundary. So in a sense the, the birds themselves are like humans labelling colours as opposed to just seeing a continuum.
2: Now could this just be because this is how these zebra finches' eyes work? You know, maybe their eyes just have a breakpoint somewhere between orange and red.
3: That was a question we asked. But as far as we know, um, based on what we can know so far, the answer is not that it's just the way the eyes work. One can put into a model and make a prediction as to whether where we found the boundary from our behavioral data matches what should be coming out of the way that we know bird photoreceptors would be gathering information about color. And there the answer was no. So we now see
2: that there is this kind of boundary for the finches between orange and red where they on one side they see orange, the other side they see red. Why do they see the world like this? What reason could there be for their perception to have this kind of
3: breakpoint? It's possible that this is just the way that animals in general parse out information about colour in the world, in which case that will lead us down one set of uh, conclusions. It's also possible that... This is uh, something that's special given that these colors, the red-orange spectrum, are important in signaling. That would bring me back to the pa-ba, right? We know that that discrimination is really important in human speech. And it may be that when it's about information in the signal, when an animal has to look at something and make a decision, that it's just more efficient. That selection, natural selection, or sexual selection is acted to sort of say let's just draw a boundary here because you know it's more efficient to just say orange or red and not to you know worry too much about the fine points in between.
2: That was Steve Nowicki who's based at Duke University in the United States. Read his full study over at nature.com forward slash nature.
5: Coming up in the news chat we'll have even more news about Mars and how an immense black hole at the centre of our galaxy is helping researchers test general relativity. Next though, Benjamin Thompson is here with a quick one-two of science in this week's research highlights.
4: If you find some giant footprints, you may think you're on the trail of the mythical Bigfoot. But paleontologists say they found the real Bigfoot, a dinosaur with feet over a metre wide. This creature may have the largest feet ever discovered, although rather than footprints, all that remains are some fossilised foot bones. The bones were excavated in Wyoming and came from a huge, long-necked sauropod dinosaur that would have been stamping around the region around 150 million years ago. This find tells scientists more about the distribution of large dinosaurs in North America during the late Jurassic. Stomp over to this research at Pier J. In more record-breaking news, two groups of researchers have persuaded particles to pirouette at over 1 billion revolutions per second. Both sets of experiments used lasers to levitate and spin silica in a vacuum. One group used individual silica nanoparticles, while the other used nano-dumbbells, made of two silica nanoparticles joined together. These super speedy spins have smashed the previous revolution record by a factor of around a hundred. It's thought that the techniques involved could be useful in astrophysics, For example, helping to test the hypothesis that rapidly spinning dust particles in space are responsible for certain frequencies in the cosmic background radiation. Give those papers a whirl over at Physical Review Letters. Ellie, I must say that I'm
2: pretty glad this studio has air conditioning. It's been oppressively hot lately in London.
5: Yeah, thanks climate change.
2: I don't think you can say that. Why not? Well, instead of saying that a particular weather event is caused by climate change, don't you have to say something like, this event is consistent with our understanding of climate change, and scientists expect there to be more extreme weather events as the world continues to warm?
5: Well, sure. I know attributing individual weather events to climate change is normally pretty difficult. Climate change studies are often broad and global. They look at mean changes over large time periods and spatial scales, rather than a particular event. But that is until researchers like Friederike Otto started getting more specific. By turning her models to particular places and time scales, she is trying to calculate how much blame can be attributed to climate change for a given extreme weather event. These kinds of attribution studies are changing the way people think about climate change, replacing the broad general statements with specific direct numbers. Reporter Noah Baker called up Friederike to find out more.
6: What scientists have been able to say before is that in a warming climate, we expect um, the the likelihood of heat waves to increase, and we can also say how we have predicted that to increase in different parts of the world. But with these studies um, that we are doing, we are able to quantify um, the effect of climate change in a specific location at a specific time of year. So at the moment, for example, we have a, a heat wave here in northern Europe. And we have just done a study where we looked at individual parts of northern Europe.
7: Tell me, how much more likely was this heat wave to occur as a result of climate change? Five times. That seems like a very significant number and also one that must be difficult to calculate. It's only recently that people like you and your group have been able to come up with numbers like this. What is it that's changed to allow you to do that?
6: in order to look at extreme events we need to be able to run a climate model many hundreds of times and that only has been possible with computer power in the last maybe 10 years and then we also needed to to develop methodologies and find out the best way of uh, of doing these attribution studies to actually also have confidence and assess assess the robustness of our results and so that that of course also plays a role and takes a bit of time.
7: Now, just to clarify here, you're not at the stage where you can say something like this heat wave was caused by climate change. That statement you can't quite make yet.
6: Well, yes, we can make that statement, uh, but it depends on what you mean with the word cause. So in the same way that you can say uh, smoking causes cancer, we can say this heat wave was caused by climate change but it's always a probabilistic causality because every extreme event always has multiple causes.
7: Do you have a sort of an end goal here with this? Is this just pure scientific curiosity? Or are you hoping that the results of these attribution studies might make a difference, either scientifically or even to policy or to how people think about climate change?
6: I think from a societal point of view, there are two reasons why we do this. The first reason is people ask the question. So when extreme events are happening, um, people ask the question, what's the role of climate change? And until very recently, before we were able to answer these questions, scientists would not say anything or uh, they would say it's the kind of event we would expect in a changing climate, but they couldn't really give any numbers or pin it down to this individual event. But politicians will give an answer or people with a different agenda. The second reason is when an extreme event happens, usually have a window of opportunity to do something about the vulnerability to this kind of events.
7: A big part of doing something like that is speed and timeliness. You know, there's no point in coming up with a study on an event that happened 10 years ago for something that might need a quick policy decision.
6: Yes. So the aim of that initiative is to provide attribution results when people are asking the question. So I think this week was actually our record. So we started on Tuesday and we had a press briefing just today on Friday.
7: Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that's a sort of a three, four day turnaround to a press briefing. But would it be possible to, in the future, not even need a press briefing? You could just post as soon as the heatwave's happening on, say, social media and say, this heat wave happened because of climate change, or this heat wave was five or six times more likely because of the, you know, the impacts of climate change?
6: What I hope for in the future is that we don't have to do this for the events where the methods are really advanced and where we have developed a good strategy on how to do this and also how to do this quickly, that the operational centers in this world would do this and that we, in our research, could focus on the more complicated events. Because at the moment, we are quite confident with heatwaves, with extreme precipitation. We have done quite a few droughts. um, But we only have done two maybe studies on windstorms. But they are, of course, also very, very important. And there are other types of events which we can't robustly attribute yet, where it would be great to be able to focus on the research.
7: Do you think things like attribution studies will make scientists' voice louder in this argument? Do you think that they will be able to be heard more?
6: I think so, yes. Being able to give concrete evidence, concrete number for a specific event where we can say, yes, we have looked at this particular part in the world and we can say that climate change, this heat wave in your backyard, ten times more likely, that is more heard than if you would only be able to say that it's the kind of thing we expect from our physical understanding.
5: That was Friederike Otto from the University of Oxford in the UK, speaking with Noah Baker. Friederike's work has already come up with some eye-catching results. As well as the European heatwave, her team also studied the recent drought in Cape Town, South Africa, and concluded that climate change had made this event three times more likely. And looking forward, according to her models, if the world warms by another degree, it will be three times more likely again. Find out more about attribution studies over at nature.com forward slash news, where there's a great feature which should help you out.
2: Finally, this week, it's time for the news chat and space reporter with Nature, Alex Witsy, joins us on the line from Colorado. Hello, Alex.
0: Hello, Adam.
2: Well, Alex, early in the show, we had a story pouring cold water on the idea of terraforming Mars. But anyone who's been paying any attention to the science news this past week will know this isn't the first time the words cold, water and Mars have been mentioned in the same sentence. Alex, what is the big news from the red planet?
0: Well, this week we had a really exciting potential discovery. It's one of those things that if it pans out to be true, um, it's super exciting. Uh, What's happening is a team of European scientists say they have found a lake on Mars, so liquid water on Mars. Now it's not on the surface, it's icy and cold. Uh, This potential lake is buried beneath the ice near the Martian South Pole.
2: And how was it actually spotted if it's under the surface?
0: It was spotted sort of indirectly from the Mars Express spacecraft. That's the European Space Agency's probe that's been orbiting since 2003. So this probe's been at Mars quite a long time. And it's got an instrument on it that uses radar to sort of bounce radio waves down to the surface and back. And sort of like using ground penetrating radar on Earth to find things like oil and gas deposits that are buried, this Mars Express radar uses its own instrument to probe the subsurface, to look at what's bouncing back from beneath the ice. And it's spotted these very, very bright reflections in this one place beneath the ice cap and they're interpreting those bright reflections as being liquid water.
2: How big a deal actually is this? How, how much does this change our picture of water on the red planet?
0: It's both a big deal and not a big deal, depending on how you think about it. <laughs> the less exciting way to think about it is that we have known there's water on Mars in various capacities. We know there's ice frozen at the poles. We've seen ice sort of frozen into the soil at different points around the planet. But it's always been solid. It's always been frozen. So the really big thing would be, this is the first time we've seen it today, liquid. And that's a big deal because of course, water is considered a habitat or at least something you need for life. So if we've got little Martians, if we've got Martian microbes, this is a place where they could live. Maybe, just maybe. So what
2: does that maybe actually mean? How certain are these findings
0: uh, of this liquid water on Mars? So people have been trying to use radar to look for liquid water on mars for a very long time for more than a decade and it's just really tricky to interpret these reflections we talked about these radio waves bouncing back and they look like a really bright reflection and so the 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 sort of question here is whether the analysis of the radar data will hold up something is there the question is is it water
2: if we're able to settle that question and at some point say yes that definitely is liquid water does that then mean there is also life there?
0: We don't know. Could be. Maybe not. Um, one, the next step that scientists talk about wanting to take is to see whether this, this one body of water, this one lake beneath the ice cap, whether there are more. And the idea is that this might be kind of a, a refuge, perhaps, for microbes that have been around for a very long time. The idea being that Mars, early in its history billions of years ago, was warmer and wetter than today, almost a blue planet like Earth. And life perhaps could have thrived there like it thrived on ancient Earth. And then as Mars sort of dried up and got colder and lost most of its atmosphere, where did those microbes go? Well, maybe they retreated sort of under the polar caps where they found little bits of water to hang on with.
2: How would we actually be able to find out this water if it's there? It's more than a kilometre under the surface.
0: I talked to one of the scientists who leads drilling projects in Antarctica, and he was talking about the huge amount of equipment they haul out onto the ice, and then they have a hot water drill, and then they they melt a core down and get to the water beneath. But how do you fly all that stuff to Mars, right? Uh, I think there's got to be a lot of technological advances, I think it's safe to say, before we could probably go sample it. It's just too tough to get there for the foreseeable future.
2: For our second story this week, let's go even further afield. And astronomers have been studying the behaviour of the black hole at the centre of our galaxy. What were they actually watching?
0: This is an amazing project that's been going on. There are two competing teams that have been looking at the center of our galaxy for more than two decades. They use some of the world's largest telescopes to watch how stars essentially dance around the center of our of our Milky Way. There is a supermassive black hole there, something like four million times the mass of our sun. And that's a heck of a lot of gravity, this big, intense black hole sucking in everything. And stars that are just a little bit too unfortunate and they get a little bit too close to the black hole, you can see them kind of skirt as they move by over time. And these two teams uh, have been watching this one particular star every 16 years loop around this black hole. And as it sort of whizzes by its close approach, it has kind of a super scary passage. It just kind of squeaks right by and then moves along and manages to escape its gravity. But it's um, it, it's sort of a two decade long watching this star kind of eke its way past the black hole.
2: Could you give some sense of how extreme this is? H- how fast is this star orbiting around the black hole?
0: It's crazy. It's crazy fast. So as it's making its closest approach, it's going more than 7,600 kilometres every second. So that's almost 3% the speed of light. And it's some of the fastest stuff we've ever measured at these relativistic speeds. And how was this observation actually made? They look at the path of the star. So they literally watch the star, you know, week after week. They take pictures as the star moves past. And they also measure its light in the direction uh, as it's moving to and away from Earth, something called radial velocity. And by combining this, they detected something that they have been looking for since the time of Einstein, a stretching of the star's light. It's basically the gravity of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is stretching this star's light towards the red. It's a very, very small, very precise, very esoteric prediction that Einstein made all those years ago through general relativity, and the team spotted it for the very first time.
2: And their observations, they're consistent with general relativity?
0: Absolutely. So guess what? Einstein was right. Einstein's always right. Don't bet against Einstein.
2: (laughs) Besides confirming Einstein once again, is there anything new to learn from, from watching this star? Something that we can learn about how black holes behave?
0: If they keep watching this star over the next months to years, they hope to detect other phenomena they've never seen before, like, for instance, how the centre of the Milky Way drags space and time around with it as it rotates.
2: Well, hopefully we'll have an update as more observations come in. But in the meantime, Alex, thank you for joining us. More on both those news stories over at nature.com forward slash news.
5: That's it for this week's show. Don't forget you can get in touch on Twitter at Nature Podcast or on email podcast at nature.com. It's also my last show, so a big thank you to you, the listeners, and thanks to Ben and Adam for being such great co-hosts. I've really enjoyed my time here, and I'll be definitely listening excitedly in the future.
2: Well, we're going to miss having you in the studio, Ellie. But to help with our withdrawal, where can we find you on social media?
5: I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Ellie Worldwide.
2: I look forward to all your tweets and your grams. Hashtag down with the kids. I'm Adam Levy.
5: And I'm Ellie Mackay. Thanks for listening.